This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So many of the interviews ended with versions of the same line. I only hope my voice will be heard. I only hope my voice will be heard. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. There's a chilling video that was released last week. A woman is weeping over a covered body on a street in Gaza. She's surrounded by people. She turns to the camera and screams, all this is because of the dogs of Hamas. And then two men grab her and literally silence her. They hold a hand over her mouth. Since taking power in Gaza in 2007, Hamas has violently repressed all opposition to its rule making it notoriously difficult to get honest information from the outside. But what if we could hear real stories from people living in Gaza about the way they're treated by Hamas? Thanks to a brave new project, Whispered in Gaza, we can. They say that in order to eventually become a civil society, the rule of the mosque on the people of Gaza must end and be replaced by a mature government, not a government of clerics. In the future they hope for, they say, religion ceases to be the foundation of our government and a tool to control all aspects of our lives. Those who want to pray, pray. Those who don't, don't have to. Women are free to remove the hijab or to wear it. They say there's a mosque every 500 meters. They're huge and nobody prays in them. That they should be converted into institutions that benefit Gazans. They want bars. They talk about wishing the movie theaters that the Islamists burned down are fixed up and rebuilt. And what about Hamas? They say... The notion that Hamas is using weapons for liberation is false. They use them for their own private interests or for the benefit of outsiders. Hamas starts war, so Qatar will send them money. The level of education is zero. Their dogma reinforces their ignorance, so anybody can manipulate us. They say the new generation is misled and misguided by a media that instills in them a thirst for blood. My guest today is leading the charge on finding and telling the stories like these of ordinary people living in Gaza. I'm joined today by Joseph Browdy. Joseph is the founder and president of the Center for Peace Communications. He's an expert on the nexus of culture and politics in Arab societies. He studied Near Eastern languages at Yale and Arabic and Islamic history at Princeton. He developed his Arabic to broadcast quality over a seven-year stint on Moroccan national radio and added Persian to his Arabic and Hebrew as a graduate student at the University of Tehran. Joseph, it is a pleasure to welcome you to Politicology. Thanks so much. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So before we dive into your work here, which is really marvelous, I'm curious about your personal history. Can you talk about why you decided to study the region in the first place? 
Uh, well, it begins with my own roots. Uh, my mom is a uh, an American of Iraqi Jewish descent. She was born into the Jewish community of Iraq, which once numbered 40% of the city of Baghdad, and dates back 2,600 years. So it's a, a sort of a hybrid identity that connects me on the one hand, of course, to my Jewish roots, and at the same time, to a very visceral feeling of connection to the Arab world. It's the language that my mother spoke as a child and um, a, a sound that I heard growing up. Beautiful. How about the Center for Peace Communications and the work you're doing there? I'll confess, when I saw Whispered in Gaza, I hadn't heard of the organization before, and certainly this is not the first of your work. So can you talk about the history of the organization and um, and how it led to this? We've been around since uh, 2019, but functioning organizationally as a group uh, for many years longer. We just at a certain point decided that it was important to hang up a shingle for practical reasons. And uh, what the CPC strives to do is to um, narrow gaps in identity-based conflicts by platforming, amplifying, equipping, supporting those elements in the region that want change. And there are so many of them in every Arab country, especially, who uh, understand uh, that the ideologies of groups uh, controlled by Iran and other rejectionist actors offer only destruction, failed states, civil war, and so on. And they want a different future. Uh, but for various historical reasons, they've always been denied the basic tools to um, equip themselves and to organize their movement. So although a small organization, we look for out-of-the-box ways to help them compensate for that uh, sort of um, you know, missing piece that they so badly need. And so that's, that's how we're basically strategically oriented. Okay. Let's turn to the Whispered in Gaza project, because this is the one I think that's getting a lot of attention right now. Can you, uh, first of all, describe the project um, and why you decided to take it on? And then I'd love to know what you've been learning. But what was the genesis of this? Well, it's well known to specialists in Palestinian affairs that there's a substantial number of Gazans who do not want to be ruled by Hamas. And, um, but it's the kind of information, the kind of knowledge that people only saw out of the corner of their eyes because it's statistics in opinion surveys, human rights reports, and so on. Um, although many Gazans have shown great courage in standing up to Hamas, notably in 2019, when a thousand young people uh, waged anti-Hamas street demonstrations, braving gunfire and prison. We felt that the world hadn't paid enough attention to that, and there needed to be a new way, perhaps a more effective way, of uh, building a platform for their voices. The problem in doing so is, of course, Hamas's system of repression and social control that doesn't allow anyone to say anything that doesn't support their narrative. And by the way, that includes foreign journalists, any, of, any one of which who might take an interest in covering local dissent, is deported or worse. So, and of course, it's sad that 
other journalists who are also there have shown less interest in Palestinian grievances that don't relate to the conflict with Israel. The, the solution that we innovated was that if we could interview Gazans and uh, doing so on the promise of anonymity, recording their voices, um, filming them, but promising not to show their name, show their faces, uh, identify them by name. We would then bring together a team of animators and illustrators and other artists to depict uh, movingly, visually, the stories those voices told in animated sequences. And in such an arrangement, you wouldn't be able, you wouldn't know their names, you wouldn't see their faces, but you could inhabit their lives. So what we did was to, uh, you know, we interviewed a great many people across the Gaza Strip from all walks of life, men and women, and uh, we then transformed those recorded interviews into 25 uh, very riveting animated clips. Each of those clips was released in a total of seven languages, accompanied by an article, clip by clip, that cites uh, survey data, rights reports, and reportage to the effect that the opinions, experiences, and perspectives that are being shared here are not aberrant or at all unusual in Gaza, but in fact, very widespread and in many cases represent the majority view of the population. Can you talk about the process of getting people to trust you enough to participate in this project? I have to imagine there was, there was considerable uh, fear, obviously, of retribution, and you've been able to protect them with the, um, with the animation, which is Beautiful, beautifully done, by the way. So hats off to your team. Um, but what was it like trying to invite Gazans into what is a very dangerous thing for them to participate in? Well, it wasn't easy, but that is the nature of what we do. Uh, and not only in uh, Gaza, but all over the Arab world, where we're active from Iraq and Lebanon to Yemen to the rejectionist countries of North Africa, like Algeria and Libya. It's about uh, building long-term bonds of trust and friendship, uh, which my team and I have been active in pursuing for all of our professional lives. What did you learn hearing these stories? I imagine having studied the region for so long, um, Maybe a lot of what you discovered didn't surprise you, but I'm curious, sort of personally, were there things you learned from hearing these stories that you didn't know before? And more broadly, how have you seen the storytelling change the way people understand the situation in Gaza? So to your first question, uh, indeed, the the views and overall perspectives were not surprising because the survey data shows uh, that a lot of people feel this way. And we can get into the details of some of that data if you're, if you're curious. Yeah. It was the details that were so uh, gripping and uh, heartrending, really. 
There was a kind of a Jean Valjean sort of story of a, a shopkeeper who sold vegetables on a in in a sort of a gray market without paying uh, the requisite bribes to Hamas, which bilks everyone from tobacco merchants to uh, to professionals and so on, and found himself uh, in prison more than once and eventually threatened with his life. And he decided, like many Gazan youth, to flee the country uh, by sea, a perilous journey, many of which many of the people who take it don't survive. This was a story told by his sister, who doesn't know where he is, and she broke into tears in the course of the conversation. And we preserved the most emotional moments in the story because it it really puts a human face on on this experience. I want to go back to um, the foreign journalists that you mentioned, because this is new to me. Um, it's It's been very difficult to understand what is real because there's been such a distortion of information, even in uh, what would otherwise be trusted news outlets, I've noticed. Many of them parrot statistics, numbers that are given to them directly from Hamas. And I didn't realize that they would the journalists themselves were under threat of deportation by Hamas if they didn't um, they didn't report the narrative that they wanted. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Yes. Now, again, I want to stress that I'm not confident that every journalist or even most journalists in Gaza have sought out these stories. Um, it's clear, it's often the case that uh, for reasons that we could speculate about or not, um, Journalists are in Gaza when they go there to to hunt for a particular type of story that is uh, more familiar and suits a certain narrative. But we also know that there have been some very brave journalists who understood the prevalence of local dissent. Some of them saw it in the uh, demonstrations of 2019, and that was a particular example in which Journalists naturally had to take an interest in it. Uh, it was a, a very significant event, um, but were severely discouraged from doing so. Um, and uh, and we know that some were deported. Maybe back to the statistics uh, that you mentioned. I'm sure that one question on listeners' minds is, what sense do you have that the people you've spoken with are representative? of Palestinians in Gaza and uh and what what number do you think that represents what percentage do you think that represents the dissent in Gaza who want a different future who talk about um you know escaping the rule of the clerics um how do you quantify uh sort of the the level of dissent that's being silenced uh in a place that's so difficult to to read statistically yes you've you've asked uh, you know you've put you put the question well because uh there are methodological problems with surveys opinion surveys in a traditional society where collective identity uh, may play a stronger role 
in the way people articulate their views as individuals as opposed to parts of a collective. And yet, uh, to begin with, there is ample survey data over a very long period of time that points to opposition to Hamas. Um, I'll give you a few examples. First, uh, in re- relatively recent polling over the past several months, uh, one survey said found that 73% of Gazans believe Hamas institutions are corrupt. 70% of Gazans said they would like Hamas to disarm and for Palestinian authority officials to administer the territory. Additionally, um, where you see Gazan support for Hamas policies, it might be, for example, a majority of them supporting Hamas's truce with Israel. And the fact that Hamas allows 19,000 Palestinian guest workers from Gaza to work in Israel and come back with their livelihoods. So, and that the violation of that truce on October 7th is based on the interviews we've been conducting with the, in partnership with the Free Press, uh, suggests that that section of the population is very angry at Hamas for violating the truce and ending the marginal benefits that were accrued as a result of the ceasefire. Um, now, let's contextualize uh, the validity of these uh, findings. There are, all, to begin with, there are also findings that contradict these assertions. And even if you were to take these fairly optimistic numbers, um, what they mean when you think about it is that if 73%, or rather, if what they mean when you think about it is that if 70% of Gazans don't want to be ruled by Hamas, then roughly one in three Gazans, which is more than 700,000 people, are committed to supporting the perpetuation of Hamas rule. That is a lot of people. It is a uh, long-term security problem for any post-Hamas administration of Gaza. Um, and it reflects the success of Hamas indoctrination through media, mosques, and schools now dating back nearly a generation. At the same time, it is undeniable that a very large number of Gazans want Hamas out. There is a case that they are the majority. And regardless of whether they're a plurality or a majority, they are more than enough to support a post-Hamas administration that is committed to reconstructing the Strip and building the beginnings of a better life for the population. I read some quotes uh, in the introduction uh, from some of the videos, um, and I wonder if you could paint a more complete picture for our listeners of what these stories show about the way Hamas treats people living in Gaza. Well, let's start with the story of the Debka dancer. The Debka is the trademark sort of national Palestinian dance form. Um, she was a dancer, a singer, and a, um, 
an actress in the, on the eve of the Hamas takeover by a violent coup in 2007. And immediately thereafter, she found herself on the receiving end of death threats that she must stop dancing. Uh, she must stop being who she is. And when she refused uh, to stop, they started threatening her brothers and saying that they would throw her brothers in, ch- in prison if, unless she stopped dancing. Um, this is a reflection of a much broader policy of uh, denying women their basic freedoms. And the frustration that this woman shares in the context of the interview, she goes as far as to say, it would be a million times better if the Israelis ruled Gaza than Hamas. That's not necessarily a statement of support for Israel. It's more a way of saying how undesirable Hamas is. Uh, And yet uh, what she is saying is entirely in line with the grievances shared by so many Iranians today, including a great many women who have taken to the streets to protest that regime. And it's not a coincidence because it's a very similar ideology. And by the way, not by accident, some of the largest proportion of our audience uh, for these clips is in Iran after we published the Farsi subtitled edition of Whispered in Gaza. And we're seeing conversations both on Iranian opposition television and in telegram apps and so on saying, wow, our government has been lying to us all these years, saying that uh, they're sending money to Gaza to defend Palestine, when in fact, they're just exporting their own extremist, uh, bigoted ideology. Wow. Just to continue in terms of examples of women's stories, uh, there's the story of the pharmacist in Gaza, a woman who was a longtime supporter of Fatah, that is Yasser Arafat's party that uh, governed Gaza before the Hamas-led coup. She describes, first of all, her persecution as a student uh, by the pro-Hamas student bloc, violent repression of the expression of their support for Fatah. Then she explains how when she tried to start a business after every opportunity for employment in administration and, and so on was denied her because she refused to join Hamas, she describes how Hamas bankrupted her pharmacy. They found every excuse to deny her a license for six months while others were getting them in one or two days. And when she finally started working, they charged her exorbitant rates to acquire uh, medicine while they were giving it uh, at discounted rates to Hamas members. And as she put it, for Gazans, one shekel makes a difference. And it was only a matter of time before she had to shut down her pharmacy. There's a story about a family that couldn't afford to pay its electric bills. Mind you, how much your electric bills are depend on whether you support Hamas or not. They also depend on whether you had the opportunity to work in Israel and send remittances home or not, because they make a point of bilking the Gazan guest workers who worked in Israel. So 
Hamas comes to shut down their electricity. And they have a, a, a nephew with Down syndrome. Perhaps he didn't understand the inherent danger of standing in front of the house in an attempt to prevent Hamas from entering uh, to forcibly shut things down. So uh, successive police trucks arrive and begin to shoot at the house. Uh, their house is riddled with gunfire. The neighborhood comes together to try to defend the household. They begin throwing rocks at the police. And as they put it, it was as if we had relived the intifada, only instead of throwing it at Israelis, we were throwing rocks at a police that was meant to protect us. The really interesting part of this story is the punchline, which speaks to the issue of repression of all free expression. One of the people who lives in the house filmed what Hamas had done. He posted it to Facebook. Within a few hours, he said, he'd received thousands of messages from Gazans who identified with his story. He was hounded by police. He was on the run for three days. Hamas couldn't find him. But in the meantime, Hamas turned to the elders of his neighborhood and said that if they wanted to avoid collective punishment, make him take down the video. He ended up in prison, as he put it. The first time I went to prison, the first thing I thought was, I don't belong here. But then I met the other prisoners and I realized everybody with a conscience is here. Everybody who thinks for himself is in prison. What an upside-down world. Joseph, one of the most disturbing things we've seen in the aftermath of Hamas's terrorist attacks on October 7th is the people out in the streets marching in support of Hamas in the Western world, in Europe, in the United States, in Canada. There's some belief that because they feel sympathy toward the people living in Gaza, they should support Hamas. Can you talk about why that doesn't work? Well, in the course of the new series Voices from Gaza that we've partnered with the Free Press to do, we've interviewed Gazans about these questions. And I'll give you a couple of examples of how they responded to questions about the protests and questions about a ceasefire in general. Yeah. Uh, one of them said that he was opposed to a ceasefire because if there is a truce, and let's be frank, it's Israel and Hamas cutting a deal with each other to leave Hamas in power. That's what a ceasefire means. If there is a truce, it means that in one or two years, Hamas will repeat the same scenario of October 7th. In those two years, we here in Gaza will be set back 50 years. And meanwhile, we need two good years just to get back on our feet. Another Gazan interviewee spoke directly to the protests and said that the protesters need to choose between supporting the Palestinian people and supporting Hamas, which oppresses the Palestinian people. She understands, she said, that these protests are oriented toward human concern for the suffering of the Gazans who live under Hamas rule, and now 
under the dangers of an Israeli assault. At the same time, she asks, why do the protesters not protest Hamas? Why do, that, why do they not stand in solidarity with Gazan protesters who braved gunfire and prison to challenge Hamas rule as part of their quest for a better life? And she finished the interview by saying, clearly the protesters are there out of solidarity and compassion. But if they understood what was happening here, they would have stayed home. What's your read on the protests? Why do you think they have exploded in the way that they have all across the Western world? And what do you think accounts for the confused logic of applying uh, Western narratives that seem to be ignorant of the history and plight of Gazans? Well, I'm sure that there are different elements that go into uh, the protest movement. Clearly, the speaker from Gaza is identifying one strand in the protest movement, which is a strand that is guided by human compassion, but is in her, her view misled by Hamas propaganda. And so in that sense, that contingent of the protest movement that is calling for a ceasefire that guarantees the perpetuation of Gazan suffering um, is a product of Hamas's success at monopolizing the conversation about what is actually happening in Gaza. Now, of course, and so I, I, I support and agree with the Gazan interviewee in distinguishing between being pro-Palestinian and being supportive of the Hamas regime that oppresses the Palestinians. My hope is that as more information comes out, and we are, of course, doing our part to safely platform Gazan voices, um, that contingent of the protest movement will better understand and perhaps fine-tune their activism to something that actually helps Gazans move forward. Obviously, there are other elements that go into this protest movement that clearly are not interested in knowing more about what's happening in Gaza and may be driven more by a bedrock hatred of something than genuine love and concern for something else. One of the disturbing responses we've seen in addition to the protests is that uh, a surprising number of people have blamed Israel and not Hamas for what happened on October 7th. Um, can you talk about the people in Gaza who you've spoken with, how they see the events of October 7th, uh, those attacks and the ongoing war now in Gaza? The Gazans we've interviewed since October 7th understand very well what is going on around them. They understand that Hamas started this war. They take umbrage and are deeply revolted by Hamas' attempts to blame 
the barbarism and the carnage that was perpetrated against Israeli civilians on Palestinian civilians. There's one woman who says, if I knew where one of these hostages were, I'd take them and hide her in my house. I'd find a way to bring her home. She noted specifically a a peace activist she was aware of who was among the hostages. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that these Gazans are not deeply critical of Israel. To begin with, they're angry at Israel for allowing Hamas to continue to rule them. But their daily experience, their daily suffering, is stems from the fact that Hamas governs the Strip. Hamas sets the policies of repression. Hamas is a corrupt actor that steals aid money from Palestinians to build its tunnels and to enrich uh, the stalwarts of the movement, a great many of whom live in great wealth overseas, in Qatar and Turkey, while the population suffers. Gazans understand that Hamas has a policy that they themselves have set of starting wars it can't win, then hiding in tunnels while leaving civilians to suffer the casualties. Since you mentioned aid, and you told the story about the pharmacy having a difficult time actually getting the medication that would help people, can you speak to the the, the broader problem of getting aid from the outside world into Gaza, into the hands of people who actually need it? And, and how do organizations go about doing that, go about bypassing the Hamas gatekeepers? Um, just explain to people the difficulty of, of that project. In the Whispered in Gaza series, one of the speakers describes Gaza with respect to aid and aid money as like the Bermuda Triangle. What goes into it, no one knows where it ends up. When uh, we began the Voices of Gaza series post-October 7th, we asked people about the issue of humanitarian aid, and they conveyed great anxiety at the prospect that, like has been the case over the past 17 years, the aid would end up in the hands of Hamas and not in the hands of the people who need it. They also mentioned health services, noting that hospitals in Gaza give preferential treatment to Hamas stalwarts and their families, often dangerously delaying uh, emergency surgery that non-Hamas Gazan civilians need. Um, So there, there is great anxiety within Gaza about humanitarian aid getting into the hands of the people who need it. Now, the hope is, and by the way, we have been speaking to Gazans who are now organizing to try to circumvent uh, Hamas, uh, stealing, pilfering, pocketing aid and relief. The hope is that uh, they will succeed in organizing new channels Uh, and new conduits for aid, especially at certain portions of the Strip, now in the South predominantly, um, become free of Hamas control. And indeed, Hamas control is waning. Uh, Many Gazans report that they seem to have sort of vanished from the streets. Their enforcers are not uh, there. 
uh, it's remarkable at the same time that Gazans are still afraid of Hamas because they're not convinced that this war is going to end with Hamas out of power. And who can blame them after four wars, each of which ended with a ceasefire that kept Hamas in power? Do you see a path to that happening? And maybe we should just turn to the 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 broader outlook for the war uh, and what we what we can conceivably hope for that is realistic. I mean, do you see the possibility of actually getting rid of Hamas, removing them from power in this war? Yes, I believe that it is possible to remove Hamas as a governing actor in the Strip. I believe it's possible to kill enough Hamas fighters and evict enough Hamas apparatchiks to make it logistically unfeasible for them to rule. And then through an international effort that will require courage on the part of many parties to introduce the beginnings of a new reconstruction administration for Gaza that will provide an opportunity for others. And there are a great many talented people to lead a technocratic government that will be concerned with building and not destroying. Okay. We've touched on a lot here, Joseph. What have I not asked you that you think that people need to understand? What have we not discussed that you think is getting missed from a lot of the media coverage in the Western world, and particularly on the center-left echo chambers? Well, let's think about that together for a moment. Um, you're, uh, you know, because I'm sort of immersed in uh, Gazan discourse, if you will, and but interested in obviously the debates here in the U.S. But you're also, meanwhile, really fighting a culture war. So, tell me what else we can do that would be helpful. One particularly stubborn uh, piece of the pro-Hamas narrative is this colonizer and colonized, oppressor-oppressed framework that is um, used to uh, justify the actions of Hamas. And it seems so very ahistoric and confused. And I wonder if you could offer a little bit of a history lesson to people who have seen this conflict through that lens because uh, it's what they were taught in school or it's what's being offered by um, left-leaning institutions. Help them understand why these, these Western ideas of colonialism and oppression uh, sort of break down when they meet the very complex reality of the situation. Those who subscribe to the notion of Israel as a colonialist project uh, underestimate the depths of Jewish nationalism in the hearts of the vast majority of Jews today and its historical roots. I think that the unity that is shown. Uh, 
post-October 7th in a highly divided and highly polarized Israeli society reflects to the extent to which Israelis are deeply committed uh, and feel organically connected uh, to the place where they live. Uh, and despite pockets of uh, alternative views among Jews here and there, the vast majority of Jews living outside Israel feel a deep sense of solidarity and a commitment to their shared national project. Now, the ethnic component of this is also misunderstood. The Middle East has always been a crossroads and a confluence of peoples, ethnicities, and identities. And with respect to present-day Israelis and present-day Palestinians, that is no exception. A narrow majority of the Jewish population of Israel today are not from any European country, but actually from the Middle East and North Africa. Many of them, for example, are like my family. I was born in the United States, but I come from uh, an Iraqi Jewish family on my mother's side. She was born in Baghdad and her family had lived in Iraq dating back 2,600 years to the destruction of the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. Their story is in the Bible when referencing the Babylonian exile and the song by the rivers of Babylon. That's a reference to the Tigris and the Euphrates. Now, so most Jews in Israel uh, trace their roots to the Middle East and North Africa. Um, although you might also say today that most Jews also trace their roots to Europe in the sense that Israel is an increasingly intermarried population. Now, it's also true that Palestinians have diverse uh, origins. And I will give some examples and again say that this is not to diminish uh, the acknowledgement and the virtue of acknowledging that Palestinians are a polity, that they are a national identity, and they do uh, have rights uh, in, historic, in, in historical Palestine. Uh, but they too stem from a variety of places. So there's a large Palestinian family named Bushnak. Uh, that means Bosnian, and those are the people who came from uh, Europe with the army of Muhammad Ali to the area in the 19th century. Jews who were the victims of pogroms uh, in Russia, in Tsarist Russia, and ended up migrating to Palestine in the 19th and early 20th centuries, were not the only victims of those pogroms. There were pogroms targeting Muslims in Russia, uh, Circassians, that is, that led them to migrate both to, to both sides of the River Jordan, to uh, what is today Jordan, and what is today the Palestinian areas. I'll put it this way. There are Mizrahi Jews, and there are Ashkenazi Palestinians. These are hybrid populations, and their hybridity is both common and widespread across the Middle East, and it does not in any way diminish their legitimacy. This is great, by the way, Joseph. Um, before we begin to wrap, maybe you can tell us about 
one specific story that comes to mind for you uh, from Gazans that moved you the most and, and why? I'll tell you something that what we, we, we did, we have conducted many interviews in Gaza, both before and after October 7th. And the thing that struck me the most, um, which has also given my team and I a sense of mission, was the fact that so many of the interviews ended with versions of the same line. After we thanked the interviewee for participating, they responded, I only hope my voice will be heard. I only hope my voice will be heard. Over and over again, we heard the same thing. Um, They have been struggling to be heard for nearly a generation of Hamas rule. International media have not carried their message. Hamas has blocked them from communicating with one another and with the outside world. We did everything we could to make sure that they were platformed. We translated their content, we translated their testimony into seven languages. We reached distribution agreements with five outlets in continents all over the world. And we we did events and so on. We did everything we could, both because we wanted the world to understand the situation in Gaza better and because we wanted to raise the morale of Gazans to be able to show them that they were being heard and perhaps embolden them to take new steps uh, to challenge their oppressors. Um, it's sad that it took the October 7th event to at last uh, draw greater international attention to this testimony. But we're really glad that people finally are paying attention. And we hope that more people will connect the dots here and grapple with the fact that for the vast majority of Gazans, their oppressor is Hamas. And it's absolutely essential for them that someone else govern the strip. Last question. Our listeners here are probably wondering what they can do to show support for Palestinian civilians who are living through this war. And I wonder if you could give people, obviously we'll point them to your work and they can listen to all of these stories, but how would you like to see ordinary Americans specifically um, show support for the Gazans in your project who want change, who don't feel like they've been heard? How would you like to see the demonstrations change? And what would give these people hope and show them that their voices are being heard, that they're quite resonant? What kind of action can be done by Americans? Well, um, first of all, let's say that to begin with, the definition of success in the effort we're waging would see Palestinian flags being waved by protesters all over America with demands that Hamas leave. Palestinian flag bearers calling for self-determination for the people of Gaza in the framework of a new government 
that is actually concerned with building a better future for those people. How do we get there? We get there through education and public information and helping people to understand the situation in Gaza better by hearing directly from Gazans themselves, not the ones who are being minded by Hamas, who are Hamas stalwarts, who have historically for 17 years been the only people allowed to hold the microphone, but the ones who are whispering, the ones who are taking precautions, um, you know, crazy precautions to ensure that that they they will not be in danger for for opening their mouths. It's it's absolutely crucial to hear from Gazans about what life is really like under Hamas rule, and then to draw the logical conclusions about what needs to be done to support them as they strive to build a decent life for themselves and their families. Joseph Browdy, thank you for your time today. Well done on the project, and I hope you'll come back. Thanks for being here. Thanks very much. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.